This is Medicaid Leadership Exchange, a podcast where Medicaid directors and other guests get frank about what it's like to steward the nation's largest health insurance program. Through Medicaid and the Children's Health Insurance Program, 56 agencies administer a complex web of programs that provide access to essential health services. Listen in as we explore some of the challenges Medicaid leaders navigate and their top priorities to deliver services and build health. Hello, and uh, today I am pleased to have invited two state agencies from the state of Virginia who have been partnering for decades to build critical alignment across the early intervention and Medicaid programs. Since 2008, the Infant and Toddler Connection of Virginia has provided EI services and supports and services to infants and toddlers who are um, experiencing developmental delays And so it's really very exciting to have the chance to learn from this national leading state on their work to both align early intervention and Medicaid programs. I'm gonna let each of our um, Virginia partners introduce themselves and then we'll jump into the conversation. Kyla, would you like to go first? Sure, I'm Kyla Patterson. I'm the early intervention program manager and I work at Virginia's Department of Behavioral Health and Developmental Services. Adrian. Hi, I am Adrian Fagans. I'm Deputy for Program and Operations at Virginia's Department of Medical Assistance Services. Terrific. So uh, before we dive in, I just maybe wanted to ask each of you uh, to talk a little bit about how you thought that early intervention services and Medicaid really needed to be aligned. When did you start to see the need to align those programs and how did this partnership get started? Well, we've really, you mentioned since 2008 that Virginia has been providing early intervention services um, since well before that, but that was around the time we started to have a real conversation about how we might think differently about the way that early intervention and Medicaid work together to support duly enrolled infants, toddlers, and their families. Um, And it really came out of a conversation looking at our early intervention infrastructure in general, but in particular around how we finance our services and how we could address issues that we were having around some provider shortages. And we uh, worked with some national consultants to think about opportunities. And one of those opportunities was to think about Um, our collaboration with Medicaid. And that from from the early intervention side, that's sort of how how we got started. Adrian, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I think um, after those conversations, after working with the consultant and then coming over to the Medicaid side um, with the children, it was very helpful for us because then we were able to very clearly in our systems identify and flag the children as early intervention, which helped us a lot. And then also too, working with the Department of Behavioral Health to identify those particular providers, because at some point we didn't know who the providers were of those services, so we couldn't check outcomes. So it became helpful after working with the consultant to be able to say, these are early intervention providers. And then also to understanding that those providers not only were enrolled in Medicaid, but they were certified um, under the Department of Behavioral Health as early intervention providers. And we were able to update our systems to reflect that. Terrific. Did you all, when you were thinking about some of those early pieces, it sounds like there was, you know, an attempt to make sure you had adequate providers and you know maximized uh, funding for the early intervention program by leveraging kids who were enrolled in Medicaid. 
Did you all um, have any efforts to talk with families um, and make them aware of the change? Or was it really a um, shoring up the program and trying to ensure access as you were thinking about some of these early trying to connect, better connect and align early intervention and Medicaid? I think to a large extent, it was work that happened at the state level and then involving our local system managers and early intervention, our providers across both early intervention and Medicaid. And along the way, we certainly had advisory councils um, that that are involved with early intervention that include family members. So they were part of of those conversations um, around awareness of what was happening. But I think in many ways, you sort of hoped families would never even know, right? Families didn't need to know. All that mattered was that infants, toddlers, and their families were getting the services that they needed. They were getting them in a timely manner, and they were getting them from qualified providers. And that, as you said, we had shored up our system to ensure that that was available for every child and family. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And again, we hope that the systems are seamless for families. And it sounds like absolutely that's what you were trying to achieve. So over the course of this partnership and of aligning these systems, certainly we know federal regulations can change for one program or another program. And that means that if you've been well aligned like you have, that requires some um, settling into the programs. Over these years of the partnership, have there been times when you've needed to make adjustments or you know, go back and revisit something because of either a change in federal regulation or a change in state law or regulation? I think the biggest change was once we kind of got settled with identification of the children who were under our, the early intervention program and also the providers who were providers of those services, was the movement of the early intervention population into managed care. Mm -hmm. Um, We became a statewide managed care state in 2014, but we still had some populations that were excluded from managed care and early intervention was one of those populations. So we began to look at, could we roll those children over into managed care to receive better care coordination from the managed care organizations than they would have received on the fee-for-service side, knowing also, too, that they were already getting cares, you know, very good care coordination through service coordinators that were uh, that are under Part C, but what additional services and wraparounds could we provide to them? So in looking at moving them into managed care, we also, at the same time we were doing that, we were developing a specialty program, so to speak, which was our Commonwealth Coordinated Care Plus Managed Care Delivery System, which was for people Uh, under long-term services and supports, but also that had more complex needs. And so those children who are identified as meeting criteria for that program, but also happen to be early intervention, we started with them. Um, It was a very small group, which helped us. Uh, The majority of the early intervention kids fell under the medallion for the larger program, but starting with CCC+, and um, seeing where we could tweak working very closely with Kyla and her team, but it also gave us the opportunity to work very closely with the local um, administrators as well to say, you know, as we start moving them, what do we need to ensure? You know, what, you know, tweaks do we need to make to the program so that when we did move all of the early intervention children um, into managed care, we had a better idea of 
you know, what we needed to clean up, um, what would make the transition smoother for not only the people who were administering it and for the providers, but also for the families and the children. And I would say too, that I think the the structure for partnership that we had built prior helped us get through that shift to managed care. It was a little bumpy at the beginning. Our um, early intervention providers went from contacting just DMAS when there were questions about Medicaid to having to figure out multiple MCOs, all of whom worked slightly differently. But because we had, had established this relationship between DMAS and DBHDS, and, and because of DMAS's investment and value they placed on early intervention, we were able to pretty quickly put in place a, a process, like Adrian said, where we were having representatives from all of the MCOs and representatives from local early intervention programs uh, meeting on a regular basis to identify what were those bumps that we were encountering and then working together um, with state level folks at the table as well to work through each of those. And, and, and along those lines, as Kyla was saying, as we created this other work group to work through, and that work group actually continues today, is we were able to make changes um, to our contracts, to our managed care contracts, to be able to say that this is necessary in order to ensure the services and the provision and good outcomes of services for the children. So we made changes to our regulations. We made changes to our managed care contracts. And one of the things we also did along with that was to have Kyla and her staff come over and actually train our MCO care coordinators on what are early intervention services. You know, uh, things like, for example, the IFSP, the IFSP is your service authorization, whereas health plans are used to, I have to authorize the services. They had to become very clear that when you're dealing with early intervention, the IFSP is your only authorization. The billing codes, which were totally different for them. Um, so that work continues now um, so that anytime there are any issues or things that we need to celebrate, we do it through that work group. And then also too, as part of it, we have the, and Kyla can speak to the Virginia Early Inter Intervention Council, the VIC, um, where DMAS actually sits on that council, and we hear and address concerns through the council as well. Terrific. I was just going to ask us to dig in a little bit to the mechanisms of your partnership, right? So in some of the ways we've learned about good alignment across agencies is we call it sort of mechanisms for collaboration, regular meetings, good communication, you know, strong relationships, shared language. So you mentioned your partnership. How have you structured that? It sounds like you've got some councils and other things. What are some of the other key components of the way you all stay aligned and sort of work together very, it sounds like very intentionally? Yeah, I think in addition to those regular meetings and um you know, mechanisms like we have a con our early intervention folks have a contact at DMAS with a dedicated mailbox. If they have early intervention Medicaid questions, they know exactly who to reach out to and and get a response. And so there's some coordination on the DMAS side to to understand early intervention and to know how to go about um, uh, getting answers. But I think the other thing we worked really hard on was a, a, aligning our um our manuals, our policy and practice kinds of manuals, our forms, um, so that all of those things have been reviewed and codified to be, you know, we have 
agreements about, as Adrian said, the IFSP is the service plan. It is the authorization. Our uh, manuals on the early intervention side and the DMAS side are identical. So if we're making changes to either, we do those in collaboration. I think that's an, another example of how we've structured that. And so along with that, one of the things that's been, that's helped us a lot is when we identify something that the other one needs, we, we have a communication, sister-to-sister agency communication. So for example, Kyla and her group are responsible for certifying the providers as early intervention. We needed to make sure our health plans had that list of certified providers so that they knew they were contracting with them as part of early intervention services. Well, one of the things, then when you think of it as something small, but one of the things our health plans needed was the NPI number of the provider. Well, on Kyla's side, they really don't use the NPI number, so they didn't need it, but they, they rearranged their systems to capture NPI numbers so that when the list comes over to us from them, they're saying, these are our newly certified providers, here are the NPI numbers, and then we take that list and share it. They, they go through Medicaid enrollment, but we also share that with the health plans so they can immediately reach out to those providers and begin contracting and credentialing of those providers to, so they can br- begin the provision of services as well. And then kind of along the lines also too, as per contract, we put it in the contract that each MCO must have a liaison for early intervention so that when the providers, the early intervention providers or the local lead agencies have any questions that they want to ask from the health plan, they don't have to go through the health plan's general 800 number they go directly to a person or an email, that person's email box, and they can ask and resolve any questions. It's just amazing. It sounds like you've done all of the things that we've tried to explore, and and it's um, really remarkable. How have you had to provide sort of higher level leadership to that? Like when new staff, I mean, staff turnover is inevitable. Leadership turnover is inevitable. So It sounds like you've got a lot of structural guarantees, for lack of a better word, that these programs are going to stay aligned. You've got it in contract and your systems and other things. But have you how have you sort of maintained the the leadership commitment, the collegial relationship commitment to this, even though you face changes of governors, changes of, I'm sure, leaders of your departments and even staff experts? So how have you sort of maintained the culture of collaboration in addition to the structures of collaboration? Well, I can tell you from the Medicaid side, because, um, and I know Kyla and her team does this, we focus on the kids. It's all about the kids. It's not about the bureaucracy. And our agency head is very committed to women and children. And also, she also helped establish this whole process along with um, previous administrations for early intervention and then also moving them into um, into managed care. So like I say, when we look at it, we have a dedicated person, as Kyla mentioned, we have a dedicated person within our maternal child health unit that takes care of early intervention, our email box for early intervention, and she handles also other um, child-related issues. And the manager for that division is also very clear that this is a big, even though the population may be small, we are very committed to making sure that the parents can have the services they need for their children. And then also working very closely across 
both agencies so that our agency director and Kyla's commissioner work very closely together. And so any issues that come up, they can talk about. Wonderful. So how I want to go back and I really appreciate you, Adrian, reminding us this is about kids, right? It's about kids who are facing either a potential delay or an identified delay. How have you seen the impact of this partnership, even in your either in your data, you know, kids are uh, getting the services they need and then not needing additional special ed services, right? Early intervention is always tricky because the goal is to support success and and yet you you lose them to the general population when they uh when they move out of the program so how have you monitored or even just felt the impact of this really strong partnership well one of the things we also require for the health plans is when the child is getting ready to age out they need to work with the parents and also work with the local lead agencies to ensure that that child that services aren't just stopping so for example, um, one that comes to mind is you're receiving early intervention, early intervention PT services. Just because you turn three does not mean that you no longer have a need for PT services. So it's up to the care coordinator on the MCO side, working with the local lead agencies and that provider to say, we need to continue PT services under the regular, what I'm gonna call the regular Medicaid services for that child so that the child is not dropped and the services are discontinued. But how are you transitioning to make sure that that child can be successful and that the child can be passed off, for example, to Part B? Yeah, and I would just say sort of beyond um, those kind of child and family level pieces, which are obviously the most important at a global level, it did address the issues we were trying to address around provider shortages and around funding for our system. So our, uh, our funding is more stable and secure. Um, and we did increase our providers and it, that provider increase sort of survived that bumpy, um, those initial bumps around the transition to managed care. And, and so I, I think it did you know, sort of accomplish the outcomes that were driving that initial push towards collaboration or a push towards expanding our collaboration. So as we move to sort of wrap up our conversation, you know, what advice would you give to other states? You know, I have had conversation with states who don't even really know where EI is in their state infrastructure, right? I mean, it's in, sometimes it's the Department of Education, sometimes the Department of Developmental Behavioral Services, like and so, you know, again, you all have painted such a compelling picture of these are children who are served by both programs, and it would only stand to reason that those programs would be, you know, aligned and, and sharing the goal of supporting that child's development. But what advice would you give to states who either don't have a strong relationship or who have tried to build a strong relationship and maybe have faced some challenges? I think one of the things that, um, we did here that worked well was to start with with our common ground right one being the why right the infants toddlers and families and the and the commitment that each side has and the requirements each side has to serve that population um and and any common ground here we already medicaid already did reimburse for ot pt and speech for early intervention, but it was structured as an outpatient rehab program. So we had something to, to sort of work from. And then we tried to think about the sort of the win-wins, what was in it 
for each of us? And where was some give and take that we could um, implement to make it worthwhile, right? Or to get us over the fact that this was going to take a lot of work and there were a lot of things we had to figure out and align. But thinking about, for instance, that, um, you know, DMAS was really interested in having some more information on some health status indicators and saw our service coordinators as a way to potentially get that information. Or um, initially, because we came with a lot more federal requirements on top of what they had, we agreed to, to be their agent for some of their quality management reviews as we got this program um, underway. And in turn, they gave us a lot of um, financial data about specifically how much Medicaid was reimbursing for early intervention services, and they expanded the, the number and type of services they were willing to reimburse for early intervention. So we were able to find some um, win-wins and, and some give and take that that helped us uh, move it along. And I'd say that you are going to have challenges. Um, know that you're going to have challenges, but be open to the change. Um, again, I, I still go back to when I look at Kyla and I, um, even though we're at different agencies, we are still serving the same child. So we it's it's about making sure that that parent can feel comfortable that my child is going to be able to access and receive the services they need. So they don't need to see our challenges that we're going through. For example, things like I need an NPI. Well, I don't collect NPIs and changes in our system. They just need to know that I have what I need to help my child be um, successful. So I think if they kind of start from that ground point and then, you know, look, do like we do all the time, reach out to other states who have done this and say, what did you do to make this successful? How did you get over this hurdle? You know, we always ask states, where were the potholes so that we don't fall in them? There are going to be challenges, but they can be done. And if you can have the commitment level from your upper leadership, that works great. But even if you have committed staff within the agency to make this work, it just has to be that someone is committed to working through the systems. I think the other thing we found helpful was to have stakeholders involved are um, early and often and to continue having them involved even after you begin implementing whatever you're able to put into place. Absolutely. Those are tremendous lessons. And um, as someone who cares deeply about both of these programs, it's just been so wonderful to chat with you and learn from your experience Mark, I'll turn it over to you to provide some commentary on the key leadership lessons and partnership lessons that you've heard during our conversation. Thanks, Gretchen. Uh, so, AJ and Kyla, one of the things that I want to thank you for is that something that Gretchen and I share in common is that we love uh, we love opportunities to geek out on the details of this kind of collaboration, and and you've provided us plenty of opportunity for that today. But one thing that stands out for me is that your story reinforces something that we hear over and over again. There's all sorts of details, you know, the stuff in the financing. We could talk all day about MPIs. That would be fun. But in order to drive that change in practice and to achieve the outcomes uh, that you've achieved, what I was struck by were those small things. Adrian, your invitation for the Kyla's folks to come over and train your staff, the development of structures to be able to talk together. Uh, Kyla, you talked about the the common ground, the you know the understanding of the why. I don't take it lightly that you can 
see through the, hey, we're all serving the same kids, because our silos weren't designed to think that way. And so what I was appreciating was, you know, the really subtle ways, but important ways that you've talked about how you built the mindset of collaboration uh, that reinforces that trust to be able to get to those win-wins, to be able to, to see how the tools and levers that you have individually within your structures can actually be used collectively to solve those same old problems that we've always historically had. And we miss that sense of seeing the world through a common lens. And so I, I'm fascinated and, and thankful for you sharing that story that reminds us of in all of the details, not to lose sight of the importance of building that that relationship that the two of you and your teams have done. Uh, it's a really, it's a powerful story. So thank you for sharing it with us today. Terrific. Well, I uh, echo Mark's uh, gratitude for having the chance to listen into this story and learn from your experience. Kyla and Adrian, thank you for all you do for children in Virginia and for serving as a model, really, for the whole nation. And I hope that all of our listeners will tune in for more insightful conversations about Medicaid and the critical partnerships that Medicaid programs are building to better serve people on our next episode of the Medicaid Leadership Exchange. This podcast is a collaboration between the Center for Healthcare Strategies and the National Association of Medicaid Directors. It is made possible by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation.